scripture reading today comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, where the Holy Scriptures read, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light is shown. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin today? Father, we come before you today. Just ask, Lord, that you would speak through me, that I would not give my thoughts or my opinions, but that these would be your thoughts as revealed in your written, perfect word. So, Father, we ask that you would help direct our attentions towards you, that we would leave today worshiping who you are, for you are glorious and worthy of all praise. We ask, Father, that you would change our affections through your word, through the power of your Holy Spirit. Help this world to grow dim in the light of your glorious grace. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, there's no question about it. Light is fundamental for humanity to flourish. We absolutely need light. With it, we flourish, and without light, we suffer. In fact, without our greatest source of life, light, which is the sun, the earth would freeze and all life on this planet would surely perish. So when it comes to sunlight, not only do we need it for warmth, keeps us from freezing to death, But we need to produce vitamin D in our skin. See, when the sun hits our skin, our skin then produces melatonin and then also produces vitamin D through that process, through the sun's ultraviolet UVB rays. And in places like Barrow, Alaska, where they have no sunlight for two months straight every single year, children have a much higher rate of a condition called rickets. What is that? It's caused from vitamin D deficiency. And if not treated, rickets can cause children to suffer wrong growth patterns, weakness in their muscles, bone pain, and severe deformities in their joints. It's a very serious thing. And for adults, it's not that much better either, because not only does it soften your bones, leading you to breaking them all the time, but it weakens your muscles too, and epidemiological, epidemiological, I think I said it right, data shows now just how vital a role that vitamin D plays in preventing many types of cancers. Another interesting thing about light is not only does it help us with our health, 
but it affects our moral behavior. For instance, one study found that criminal assaults are much more common after dark, which is just another reason we should go on daylight savings and never leave it. That's just a side note. But it happens much more often after dark, and they found in this study, by simply putting up streetlights in urban areas, that you can lower crime by up to 70%. In 2013, The Atlantic published an article titled, What Darkness Does to the Mind, which told of how in a University of North Carolina study, they looked at how light affects moral behavior. And so here's what they did. They had two rooms set up. They had a lighter room and they had a darker room. And they had participants come in, and each participant was given 20 problems to solve. All right? And for each right answer, they were given money. And each wrong answer, they got nothing. And here's the thing. At the end of this... They, it was all the honor system. They didn't check their work. They just said, oh, how many did you get right? Okay, here's your money. So if you wanted to, if you were a dishonest chap, you could just straight up lie about it. There's nothing they could do about it. And so here's what they found out, though. They found out that the light room, which had 12 lights, decreasing that from 12 to 4, so that's 8 if you're bad at math like I am, going from 12 to 4 increased people's willingness to lie by up to 40% pretty drastic. Light has a great impact, not only upon our health, but upon our behavior. Did you know that prisoners who are put into cells with total darkness, they found that they begin to lose their minds just after 48 hours of being in there alone? This past week, I was reading of one prisoner's testimony who was put through eight years of on and off abuse in prison where they, were, they had put him in cells with darkness and, as punishment. And finally, when he got out of there, when he was free from prison, you know what happened to him? Well, he wasn't really that free because his mind was still trapped. His family would find him at home, often in cold, dark places, talking to himself, refusing to engage his family members because he was so used to talking to himself and not interacting with other people. And so the point here we're making is that humanity fundamentally needs light. And without light, the darkness that we are in, it harms us. It's bad for us. It corrupts us morally and physically and even warps our minds. In Isaiah chapter 9, we read of how humanity has been engulfed in complete and total darkness. Not really just physical darkness, but it's spiritual darkness, which is actually infinitely worse. For not only does spiritual darkness lead to terrible physical problems, it does, including bodily death, it's pointed out a man wants to die and then comes to judgment, the wages of sin is death, but darkness leads to both moral and spiritual corruption. And so in this chapter, the prophet Isaiah, he describes this darkness, this corruption as what in verse 1? Doom and anguish. He describes it as deep darkness in verse 2 and in bondage in verse 4. And the point Isaiah is trying to get us to understand is that humanity's situation is beyond dark. It's terrible. It's, in fact, it's a hopeless situation. Our situation isn't just kind of dark. You know, it's not like we have a nightlight on. It's kind of hard to you know, make our way around. It's so much worse than that. Our situation is that not only are we in total spiritual darkness, but as Isaiah alludes to here, we're actually in total bondage as well. That's why he called it deep darkness. And if you're in deep darkness and you don't know the path out, you're not going to be able to get out. Because for one, you don't know the way, but second, we're in bondage in this darkness. 
And so yet as bad as our situation is, and it's bad, Isaiah tells us something remarkable. He says, a hope has dawned. Look at verse 2 if you have your Bibles. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. Here's what he says. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Right? So we've got deep darkness, and we have great light being contrasted in this passage. Continue on. He says, on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. In case you don't know what the meaning of Christmas is, it's that verse right there. That is the entire reason we have Christmas. It's not about Santa. It's not about being holly and jolly. It's not even about good food as much as I love that. That verse is the meaning of Christmas right there. For those in deep darkness, and in case you don't know this, that's every single person born. You are born into deep darkness. That's all of us. And yet the hope Isaiah offers here, he says, you know what? Guess what? You're in deep darkness. All of humanity was, but a light has dawned. Which means by that light, if we embrace that light, we can see again. We no longer have to whine. We, don't have to, we no longer have to wander around blind and bound in gloom and anguish. Why? Because hope has come. That's his point. And the hope that Isaiah is describing here is exactly what we're celebrating every single Christmas. Now, before we get to that, in order to have the hope of Christmas, we have to recognize three things, and here they are. To have the hope of Christmas, we must recognize the darkness within us, the light from without, and third, the gift that must be received. When we speak of spiritual darkness, what are we talking about here? What, is it, what does it mean to be in spiritual darkness? That depends on who you ask, okay? Because our secular world, they'll tell us that the dark really isn't all that dark. It's just kind of dim, right? It's, and largely speaking, the darkness of humanity, it's more of an ignorance thing. It's more of a lack of knowledge, okay? Maybe people are confused. Maybe they just haven't been taught, so they don't know any better, Maybe out of their ignorance, they make poor life decisions because they just don't have good opportunities. So they steal because they don't have a good job. They weren't educated enough. Something like that. That's basically the way our world views what the darkness is. How does the Bible describe the darkness? A whole lot differently. The Bible describes the darkness as, yeah, there's ignorance involved. Don't get me wrong. But it's so much worse than that. It's so much worse than ignorance. For in the Bible, darkness also includes evil. And this evil, as we know, comes from both outside of us and from within us. In fact, the Bible tells us something very shocking that our culture hates. It tells us that even our hearts are filled with wickedness. Jeremiah 17, 9, here's what it says. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Similarly, Romans 3, 10 through 11 says, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Do you understand that this message that is represented by these two verses is something that our culture hates? People hate the gospel message of Jesus, one that includes this truth. And that's what the true gospel includes. It includes the darkness, telling how bad the darkness is. And maybe you didn't know that people hate this but there's millions of people that certainly hate this message. And why do they hate it? Well, last week, Josh sent me an article by a guy who basically wrote a critique of the American gospel, that movie that you know, we give out in our lobby out here that we go around giving our door-to-door ministry. A lot of you have seen it. Anyways, it's basically explaining what the gospel is, and it focuses on some of these verses and, and basically explains what, exactly what it is and exactly what it isn't. But anyways, in the article that Josh sent me, 
This author explains that he does not like the American gospel. Why? Because he doesn't like the gospel. He says it's small-minded. He says it's abusive. It hurts people. Why is it small-minded? Well, because the gospel says what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. That's Jesus' words. So it's very exclusive. It doesn't allow a whole bunch of ecumenical... It's not ecumenical. It doesn't let people all get there by different paths. You can't get there then by Islam. You can't get to heaven or to God through Buddha, through Hinduism or Mormonism. The author of this article, he wrote, he says this. He says, why can't we develop relationships with all of them? Appreciate their beauty and consider with them how we can all be more present in grace. You see what he's saying? He's saying Christianity is too exclusive. It's too narrow-minded needs to be enlightened. He's saying that it's wrong to make bold, dogmatic claims about God that excludes other people's claims about God, which is a bit ironic because if you see the hypocrisy there, he's doing the very same thing he's accusing Christians that they shouldn't do at the same time, but that's another matter. He goes on to explain how the gospel's view of what we call penal substitution, and what is that? It's the teaching that Christ didn't just defeat darkness on the cross, He didn't just show us an example of how to love others. What was Christ doing on the cross? Christ was suffering in our place. He was substituted, the righteous one, for sinners so he could absorb the wrath of God upon himself. Many people out there would say, well, that's divine child abuse. That's terrible. You actually believe that. The gospel tells us that's what happened. They would say, what kind of God would do that? What kind of God would send millions of people to hell simply for who they are, something they were born as? What kind of a God damns people to an eternity of torment for something as inconsequential as telling a little white lie? It's just wrong if there's a God who would do that. Let me ask you a question here, and be honest. Do you at all resonate with his frustrations? Do you really believe deep down in your heart, that your sin is really that bad, so bad that apart from the grace of God given through Christ, that you actually deserve suffering in hell for all of eternity. Maybe intellectually you'll say, yeah, I believe that. I, I understand that. I believe that. But in your heart, do you really believe that you're as bad as all that? Do you really believe that your parents, apart from Jesus and trusting in him, what they rightfully deserve is hell for eternity. Do you believe that about your spouse? How about about your child? If they grow up apart from Christ and don't trust in him, that they will deserve an eternity in hell. Do you really believe that? Is the darkness that you claim to believe in really all that bad? I'll be honest with you. I asked, you know, a minute ago, I asked if, uh, if you resonate all with his frustrations, and I'll be honest, I do a lot. I have a lot of empathy for this guy. In fact, what he's struggling with is something that I often struggle with. I've struggled with since I was probably eight. It's a hard truth. It's hard to believe that the darkness within us is really that bad. See, it's easy to think somebody like Hitler is that bad. But not me, not you. We seem like pretty nice people. You know? A few problems here and there, but mostly we're pretty nice and polite. And so, yeah. I can empathize with this guy quite a bit. 
But you know what I've come to realize? This isn't a perfect answer, but it's a start. I've come to realize, this is huge, I have no reason whatsoever to trust in my blind spiritual eyes. That's really what this comes down to, right? That's really what we're dealing with here. Whose vision of reality are we trusting? Right? If I wanted someone to describe to me a Leonardo da Vinci painting that I've never seen before, who would I rely on? Who would I rather rely on? A person who was born totally blind or Leonardo da Vinci himself? Who would, who would you rely on of those two? Talk to me, church. Leonardo da Vinci, right? Obviously. He made the painting. He can see it. He's not blind. I'm not going to ask a blind person. If the blind person's like, well, that's pretty bigoted and narrow that da Vinci thinks it looks like this, then she's like, I, I made it. I, I know what's going on here. I, you know, Get the idea here? And that's just it, isn't it? See, you and I, as sin-fallen humans, we were born into complete and total spiritual darkness. And because of this, I am warped. My thinking is warped. My mind is warped. My soul is warped. I am physically, morally, spiritually, and intellectually warped. That's our blind condition. And, it, and if, that's blind, our, if that's our blind condition, and it is, the Bible tells us, why on earth would I trust my blind spiritual eyes to tell me what reality actually looks like? That's what's at stake here. Whose eyes am I going to believe in? Here's what the Bible says about that. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says this, The person without the Spirit, okay, it's talking about God, the person without the Spirit of God does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers the things of God to be what? Foolishness. And cannot understand them because why? They are only discerned or understood through the Spirit of God. That's a bad situation for us. Okay? That's what the Bible says our situation is. For a dark in darkness entrenched sinner to stand up and look at God and say, that is wrong, you are incorrect, is like the blind person staring at da Vinci and yelling and saying, nope, you don't know what the pain looks like. I do. It's foolishness. Look at verse 2. When it speaks of the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali and Galilee, what is this verse talking about? What is Isaiah getting at here? Well, the prophet Isaiah was writing at a time when the Israelites had been living in a time of prosperity, with having political power, that was about to all change. Why? Because God was going to bring judgment, and he was going to bring it hard, because they had sinned and rebelled against him over and over and over. And he says, all right, judgment's coming. They were about to experience God's judgment by the hands of the Assyrians. And if you know anything about the Assyrians, these people were basically the Nazi Germany of ancient history. These were nasty people. When they would come in, they would just do, I'm not going to say it because it's just unspeakable things, and their goal was try to make things so barbaric that the next town, the next city they got to, they're just like, no, no, you can, you can take things over. We don't want to end up like that. We don't even want to risk it. They were cruel and unimaginably barbaric. And so Isaiah the prophet, whose name actually means the Lord is salvation, he's writing to the Israelites, warning them about what God is going to do to them and it's going to be severe. But that's not the end of the word. It doesn't stop there. He also leaves them with a message of hope. Judgment's not going to be the last word for God's people. For as verse 1 says, the region of Israel 
which was first hit the hardest by this coming Assyrian invasion, Zebulun, Naphtali, Galilee, would be one day the first to see the dawning light of hope that God promised. Well, what's the dawning light of hope? What is this talking about? Look at verse 6. The child born. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. All right, but who is this child? Who is this child who is the light and hope of the world that Isaiah is talking about? Let me ask you a question. Where was Jesus from? Anybody know? Galilee? I think you said Galilee. Yes, he was from Galilee. Let me ask you another question. Where was Galilee located? In the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Zebulun and Naphtali were in the region of Galilee. Another question, where was Jesus born? I'll just give it here for us. Luke 2, 4 through 7. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and lied him in a manger. So Jesus was born in Nazareth, is what it tells us there. And where's Nazareth? In the region of Zebulun. And now do you understand why Matthew writes in Matthew 4, 13 through 16 about Jesus? He says, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. Remember, that's echoing Isaiah here. In the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, our text this morning, might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of, in the shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. Church, Christ is the child that Isaiah prophesied of that would come, that Matthew is speaking of in this verse, which means that Christ is the light and life of men, which is why Jesus says in John eight twelve, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So this means that unless we come to recognize the darkness that's inside of us, and actually how dark it is, we cannot come to recognize our great need for this light. We won't see this light as being all that helpful, all that vital, but it is. We must come to recognize the darkness within so that we can come to recognize our need for the light from without, which leads us to our second point. If you look at verses 3 through 5, there's a lot of imagery going on in these verses, and we don't have time to unpack it all but we'll touch on some of it. The point, though, Isaiah is making is that the child who is born here, who we now know, we just looked, it's Jesus Christ, right? And we could talk about that for hours but, and show why that is. But Jesus is the light of the world who will overcome the darkness. And he's using imagery here to tell us how he's going to do it. So how will Jesus free God's people from their oppressors? Look at verse 3. He'll do it by multiplying the nations 
and increasing its joy like a farmer who rejoices in great harvest or a soldier who has won a great battle. Verse four, he'll do it by breaking the rod of the oppressor. How? As was done on the day of Midian. Well, what happened on the day of Midian? Well, you remember Sunday school if you grew up in that. It's the story of Gideon who was used by God with how many men? 300. 300 men to save Israel from a massively large invading Midian army. And if you remember that story, right, they weren't victorious because they were some hardcore super elite fighting force. They weren't like Navy SEALs who just overcame, you know, one soldier for every 10. That's not what happened, not even close. In the story of Gideon, what happened was there was no way they're going to win. Remember, Gideon showed up with a whole bunch of soldiers and God's like, that's too many. Weeds them down. That's too many. Weeds them down. 300. There you go. And Gideon's like, are you kidding me? We're going to get slaughtered. And then God steps in and just destroys the whole army for them. They don't even have to do nothing. God stepped in and won the battle for them. And so then in verse 5, Isaiah, trying to make this point even more clear for us, he hammers it even harder, explaining how even war itself would one day be no more. Wouldn't that be great? Peace on earth, actual true peace, lasting peace on earth. How does he describe it? He says, the boot of the warrior and the uniforms stained by blood will be burnt up as fuel for the fire. And why? Because we don't need them anymore. There's no more war. And is that because humanity somehow found a way to finally overcome the darkness? Did we just get schools that were just so good, where we taught people so well, where we had you know, solid homes and family structures? And No, not even close. Why then? Look at the last line of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Just like he did on the day of Midian. That's why. Did you notice in this text that even though Isaiah, because remember, Isaiah's writing like a long time before Jesus was born. Okay? This is like hundreds and hundreds of years. He wrote before Jesus was born, prophesying about what Jesus the Messiah would do. Okay? But notice how Isaiah is speaking of these future events. He's talking about them as if, as if they are past tense. Well, why is he doing that? It's kind of weird. It'd be like me saying, you know, I went home this afternoon and ate pizza. Like, what? No, you didn't. You're still here. And that's not proper English. Why is Isaiah doing that? It's because Isaiah was speaking this way because he was so certain that when God said he was going to do something, it was good as done. That's why. As verse 7 says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts surely do this. When Isaiah speaks of God's light dawning upon our sin-darkened world, the imagery here is of the sun. The sun is the picture of this. And as we said earlier, without the sun, there's no life. Everything's going to freeze. And so similarly to how the earth needs the sun to live, so do, so too, do we need God to live. Here's what Acts 17, 28 says about that. It says, in him we live and move, and we have our being. And so the only reason we exist is because God is upholding us, even the very molecules right now within us, he's upholding them by the power of his might, as Colossians tells us. And if he stopped doing that, that'd be the end of it. So do you see how greatly our lives depend upon God? Not only is this true of our physical bodies, as we just mentioned, but it's also true of our spiritual bodies, of our soul. See, the Bible tells us that every single one of us has fallen from relationship with God, and that's the reason the world is so dark. It's why we experience death in this life, 
It's why we experience loss of meaning in life, loss of hope, addiction that ravages people and families. It's why for many of us, even at great times like Christmas, there's often this sense of discontentment, of, of not ever being satisfied. Like, you know what I'm talking about. Like, you get that gift you really, really wanted, and you're like, this is awesome. And then like three days later, you're like, well, I didn't live up to what I thought it was going to be. We all have that. We all have feelings of shame about past mistakes. We all have identity struggles. Trying to find our identity in things. We all suffer from a total inability to change, and even in the areas where we know we need to change. Like, it's blatantly obvious, but yet we find ourselves where we can't do it, no matter how desperate we are. Why is that? It's not because of lack of education. It's because we've been spiritually cut off from the true source of life, which is God himself, and we've been cut off because of sin. You know, there's nothing quite like the sun. Its light is beautiful. It makes us feel refreshed when we sit in it. And as we said earlier, without the sun, we become sick, twisted, shallow versions of ourselves. And this is just the physical sun. But just as our physical sun wipes away the darkness of night, church, so too does the Son of God wipe away the darkness that's within our souls, that's within our hearts. John 1, 1 through 5 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word, this is Jesus, Right? That's who the Word is. That's what it's talking about. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus made it all. In him, Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Why is it that Christ can wipe away the darkness within our souls? What gives him the authority to do so? What gives him the power to do so? Why not Gandhi? Why not Muhammad? Why not somebody else? Why does he get this exclusive claim? Well, as Isaiah tells us, it's because he is God. He is a powerful, perfect, and victorious king as God, too. Jesus is a powerful king. He is a perfect king, and he's a victorious king. How is he a powerful king? He's a powerful king because he can break our yokes of bondage and free us. And if we had time to look at Hebrews 2, we would see just how bad our bondage is. It's hopeless. However, this powerful king will one day soon return and sit upon David's throne. And that's not just ruling Israel. This is talking about ruling the entire world, being the king of of kings and the Lord of lords. And when that happens, when he sits upon David's throne one day soon, he will rule and reign and there will be no more war. That's what this text is referring to. And that's why this text calls him the Prince of Peace. Not only is he a powerful king, but he's also a perfect king, right? Like, it'd be one thing to have a really powerful king, but that powerful king, he might do some shady stuff. He might get you in his crosshairs, and that's not a good thing, and act unjustly towards you, but not this king. This king is a perfect king, for he is a holy king who has no darkness or sin whatsoever within himself, which is why he can rule with perfect wisdom and be our wonderful counselor. 
As Hebrews tells us, Christ isn't just some God out there who doesn't understand what we're up against and is like, here's the rules, just do it. No, he understands our situation. He understands the human condition. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our great high priest who can empathize with us in our weakness. Why? Because he's Emmanuel. He's God with us. He's the God man. He experienced what we experienced. He went through suffering, pain, betrayal, abandonment, injustice, loss, and even death. And here's the thing about it. Jesus knows the frustrations that you go through even more than you do. You say, well, how's that work? He's holy. He didn't, how, how, did he really, how did he really be tempted like we were? Hebrews says he was tempted in all things just as we were. Well, Lewis has a good point about that. He talks about how the tree, if a storm comes through, and knocks all the trees over. Do you know which tree faced the full force of the storm? The one that didn't fall over. Because the trees that got knocked over, boom, 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 right at the start, they didn't feel the full weight of the storm. Christ did, though, because he stood. He did not fall into sin. And so he knows full well the full force, the full temptation of what sin actually does to us. And this is why he is Emmanuel, God with us. He's the Christ, the God-man who was born in Bethlehem, who experienced what we experienced, and so he knows about what we are feeling even more than we do. And that is why Isaiah says he is a wonderful counselor. Not only is Christ a powerful king, not only is he a perfect king, but he's a victorious king. Okay, Because it would be one thing to have a powerful king and a perfect king, but if he just gets defeated by the enemy, well, that didn't do us much good. But no, he's a victorious king. Now, maybe you're wondering, you're looking around the world, you're like, well, it doesn't seem all that victorious. Our world seems pretty dark still. I don't know what's going on here. I know Jesus came 2,000 years ago, but if he really did, if he really is a powerful, perfect, and victorious king, what is going on with our world? Did I miss something? Has he somehow been ruling for 2,000 years on this earth, and we just didn't notice it? No. The only way to understand that question in this text, rightly, is to recognize something that the Jewish people totally missed when Jesus came. They, they missed it big time. And what did they miss? They missed the first and second coming of Christ. They missed that Jesus, the Messiah, the child whom Isaiah prophesied of, would have two comings. Yes, his second coming, which is hopefully happening very soon, will be in glory with power and with authority as he comes as a powerful, perfect, and victorious and reigning king. Hopefully that happens very soon. But that could not happen until his first coming, which is what we're celebrating every Christmas. For his first coming was vital for changing our sin-darkened hearts to be able to enter his glorious kingdom of light. So you don't get into Christ's kingdom if you've got the darkness still in your heart. It's got to be washed out of there. And so in order to accept the light of the world, which is Christ, in order to have the darkness removed, what do we have to do? Work for it? Be good enough? Be moral enough? Do enough right things? Go to church enough? Pray enough? No. It comes to us freely as a gift, which leads us to our final point. To have the hope of Christmas, we must recognize the darkness within, the light from without, and the gift to be received. If you notice after Isaiah says, for unto us a child is born. What does he continue on to say? Unto us a son is given. And so even if you have come to recognize, 
yeah, there's a lot of darkness in this world, and I got a lot of it in me. And maybe you've even gone so far as to recognize, you know what, I do need the light in life of men. You're still not going to have the hope of Christmas until you actually accept that gift. How do we accept it? How do we receive it? John 12, 46 says this, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me will not remain in darkness. Similarly, John 8, 12, Jesus says this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's really that simple. Whoever believes and trusts in him will not be put to shame. So if we want this light to change our sin-darkened hearts and enlighten our lives, then we have to receive it just like we received all the other gifts we got yesterday. How? You don't earn it. You don't pay for it. You know, when I got a gift from my, from my family, it wasn't like, oh, how much was it? Okay, here you go. Here's 50 bucks. Thank you. No. They'd look at me like, that's not the point of a gift. Same thing with Christ. We don't earn it. We don't pay for it. We don't achieve it. We receive the light and life of men freely. And this is something what the Bible calls grace. That's what grace is. Look again at verse 5. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. It will be fuel for the fire. Here Isaiah is telling us that the great victory over the darkness, it's not done in our strength. It's not done through moralism. And so we won't need the warrior's boots or armor or sword. He says, melt them down. Burn them up. And why? Because God's won the battle. He won the battle that you never could. How did he do that for us? Later on in the book of Isaiah, he tells us how. Here's what it says. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. The only reason that we can walk in the light is because Christ walked through our darkness. The only reason that we can experience then gladness and joy is because Christ experienced our gloom and our anguish. The only reason we can walk freely is because Christ bore the yoke of our burden and he bore it, how? Upon a tree where he was trampled by the wrath of God and his garment was rolled in blood. And so the only reason we can have life is because he gave up his life freely for us. You know, the Christian story of Christmas is the greatest story ever told. It's the story of the supreme and all-powerful God of the universe who set aside his power, he set aside his throne, and he came down from the heights of greatness into time and space to embrace a sin-fallen humanity as he was born by the virgin so that he might die. He descended into our darkness then in order to bring us God's wonderful light. And so the question is, have you accepted that light? Have you recognized your absolute desperate and dire need for that light? Have you recognized the darkness you're in? If not, as we mentioned before, know that this light is coming back for a second time. So very soon. And so if you are a child of light, then I have to ask you again this morning, is that your hope? 
Is that what you're excited about? Is that what you're longing for? Are you longing for his appearing? Or have you gotten your eyes back on the darkness that you were saved out of? Well, if that's you today, find joy once again in the light of Christmas. Though Christ's first coming was but a dawning of the light, if you've ever watched the sun rise, you know that once you see it pop up slightly above the horizon, it comes into full display quite quickly, quite faster than you would have expected. And so too is it with Christ. His first coming is the dawning of the light, but his second coming is coming so very soon. And so if you haven't accepted the Son who was given, if you still have the darkness within you, and you're trying to get it out by yourself through, I don't know, moral, religious, obedience, whatever, it's not going to work. Give up on that. Because if you don't, and you do not embrace the light and life of men, know that when the sun fully rises, he will then wipe out all darkness that remains, which will include the darkness that's in you. That will be a day of judgment, is what the Bible calls it. Are you here this morning walking in darkness? Then do so no longer, and take hope for a light has it dawned. Father, I thank you for this text. I just thank you for the light and life of Christmas that we have. It's Christ Jesus. Father, I pray for the Christian here who is looking around at the darkness that we still walk through. And though we do have you as our light with us, maybe right now they are feeling like they are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, that the darkness is creeping in on them. So Father, I just pray that you would give them hope. I pray that you would help them to have comfort in knowing that the darkness cannot overcome us, for you overcame it. You already walked through the valley of the shadow of death for us, so that you can lead us through it victoriously. So even though we pass through death, we too will rise again with you to live victoriously forever. Father, I pray for the one here today who's trying to be a good person through themselves. They're trying to get through life, wandering around in the darkness, in their bondage of sin. Pray that they would turn from that sin and embrace the light and life of men, which comes freely to us by grace through faith in Jesus. It's really that simple. We pray these things in Jesus' name.